Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Mind on Mental Health podcast. My name is Andy Dean. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And today I'll be speaking with Dr. Becca Boswell. Dr. Boswell is a supervising psychologist at the Princeton Center for Eating Disorders. Today, Dr. Boswell and I discuss eating disorders treatment and how providers can really tailor treatment for those who have a chronic form of an eating disorder. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation and find it helpful. All right, Dr. Boswell, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to have some time to talk with you. Well, I'm super pumped to have you here. Um, and usually what I like to do is just have people kind of explain who they are and, and why they're a good person to be talking about this. So can you just talk about what you do for the agency and who you are, et cetera? Absolutely. So I am Dr. Becca Boswell. I am the supervising psychologist at the Princeton Center for Eating Disorders. We're an inpatient unit at the Princeton Medical Center uh, treating eating disorders um, that require medical supervision. So a really high acuity, really medical um, complications are what we uh, help to manage and treat people of all ages, ages eight and up, all genders, and try and help folks get started on their road to recovery. You know, one of the things that always stuck out to me when I first learned about our eating disorders unit was just how young these kids are that are coming in. I mean, eight just seems so young to me. I, and yeah. I always give this disclaimer to um, anyone I, I have on here to talk about eating disorders. that This is not my area of expertise like whatsoever. So I, I'm really going to be leaning heavily on you to to, to tell me I'm really not going to have much of an opinion on a lot of the things that we talk about. But yeah, I just, it blows my mind that kids as young as eight can be struggling so severely with eating disorder issues. Yeah, you know, it's really sad to see the the young kids come in. I feel like it's been getting even more severe and at younger ages mm. since COVID. It's just been really stark to see um, how much kids are struggling. But you know, eating disorders are not so inaccessible. I know they're not covered in most training programs and are talked about less often than things like anxiety and depression, but, mm -hmm. you know, affect kids with just as much frequency. So, you know, those really anxious kids or really depressed kids that you might've seen in other settings. Um, this is another manifestation of some of those challenges that can happen even at young ages. Thank you. Thank you for trying to put me at ease a little bit more. A, a little yeah. bit about that. I, but uh, you know what? I also recognize that that's true. You know, I do think oftentimes it is exactly like you said, it's just another manifestation of things that, you know, as clinicians, we're all pretty familiar with. But I guess just out of curiosity, you said you think COVID is really, has really sort of exacerbated things with, with these younger kids. What do you think contributed to that or is contributing to that? Yeah, well, you know, I think I've seen it really acutely in kids, but, you know, really of our, our patients of all ages. Mm -hmm. um, it just it was such a disruptive experience, just really traumatic to have your way of life fully uprooted for such a long period of time, and especially at a very young age, to be disconnected from peers and disconnected from your normal routines is just really shocking. And I think, you know, in that disconnection is where eating disorders can really thrive. Totally. And hey, I'm going to go back to the point you just made. In that disconnection, I think, is where all mental health issues really can thrive. So again, I was sort of differentiating between eating disorders and anxiety and depression, but it sounds like it's really, it's been affecting people with eating disorders in the same way it's been affecting people with depression, anxiety, etc. You know, it's just Yeah, kind of absolutely. Of, of course. You know, I think about um, 
you know, people are kind of like plants, they need their sunlight and their water. And that human connection is really one of those essential things that help us grow. And, you know, COVID really took away a lot of that light. I'm definitely stealing that quote from you. Take it. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, it's an awesome point. Okay, so in our hospital, it sounds like really what you're dealing with is very severe medical complications, very severe cases of eating disorders, anorexia, etc. What's sort of our treatment approach with those people? I mean, it sounds like you said the acuity is very high. So like, what are some of the maybe medical complications that people are coming in with? Oh, gosh. Well, there's, you know, eating disorders are one of those conditions that can really affect almost every body system. So, you know, we often see disruptions in cardiac function, in blood pressure, in mm. electrolytes and electrolyte balance in, you know, the blood. We see loss of bone density. So really early onset loss of bone density, even in really young people, but across all oh. ages, um, lots of gastrointestinal side effects. There's, mm -hmm. you know, stress on the liver and kidneys, neurological stress that comes from being undernourished. And so, you know, really just the whole body can be affected. And so we know we're really fortunate to have, you know, folks with good medical specialties available to consult and help people get back on the path where their bodies are getting what they need to do all the body stuff and mm -hmm. keep them healthy and strong. So one thing that I think I know about eating disorders, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, is I always have a tendency to sort of compare it to substance use at, at times, because I feel like there's sort of a, for many people, there can be sort of a chronic element to those, to those conditions, to substance use and eating disorders. Am I off base in saying that? Or does that sound... Correct. No, that, that's a comparison a lot of people make. I think there's there's kind of like a Venn diagram between the two. That there's like <laughs> some overlap, but some things that are different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that it can be different about eating disorders and substance use disorders is um, whether people tend to be under controlled, so more sort of impulsive, following rewarding things, or over controlled, so exercising too much control over their behaviors. And sometimes our eating disorder folks are more over-controlled than under-controlled, but it can really vary. I think one of the things that is tricky for substance use versus eating disorders is that for substances, some of the first-line approaches is really abstinence-based, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, planning to just not use that substance and practice relapse prevention in that way. But for eating, that's something that you have to do multiple times every right. single day. And so... There's no avoiding it. You got to go right through all of that anxiety around what's the appropriate way to nourish yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so that that can present some unique challenges for folks with eating disorders. Sure. And I don't mean to ask you to go back, but I just want some clarification on something. Can you just explain the under-controlled versus over-controlled element a little bit further? That sounds interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's sort of uh, based in some personality theory or in just sort of behavioral tendencies that if you think about people with substance use disorders, there's often this, you know, belief that people can be pursuing a rewarding feeling at first, right? Mm -hmm. So trying the risky substance, really enjoying the high of that substance, and it becomes compulsive um, and stops being rewarding. And it's sort of like to avoid the withdrawal symptoms later on. And that's one of the, the models of how addiction starts and gets maintained. Mm -hmm. For eating disorders, it's not that they're chasing the reward of food so much, right? It's that they're chasing the self-reward of feeling controlled, right? That they're able to exercise a lot of self-control 
uh, that they're not losing control in the face of the rewards. Mm -hmm. And so the rewarding thing there is that sense of, you know, being perfectly able to regulate everything in their world, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the reward of a substance, a massive pie of that substance. But it's, you know, a different approach to, to sort of like behavioral practice, right? That, um, you know, sometimes with substance use, we're teaching folks to, you know, surf urges to resist those kinds of rewarding things in the world. And mm -hmm. more often than not, for eating disorders, we're encouraging people to practice reconditioning the reward system so they're finding food rewarding again, right? That it had stopped mm -hmm. being rewarding, it became fearful. So basically reteaching people to feel good and enjoy food again. Yeah, and to let go of some of the like controlled personality traits that they can develop in social interactions mm -hmm. and in just behavioral tendencies overall. You know, folks with eating disorders can be really rigid and mm -hmm. follow rules and want to do everything just quite right. And so that can sometimes maintain the eating disorder, that sure. it feels like there's a right and the wrong way to be interacting with food. And that's something that we don't see as much in substance use, right? It's more mm -hmm. about like, how do you navigate those moments of loss of control? Totally. Okay. So if we think about this in terms of like these people that unfortunately it's sort of a chronic condition, I mean, well, A, how many folks that struggle with eating disorders should we think of it as like a chronic condition? Is it, you know, I don't know if there's a statistic out there, but is it 90% of people with an eating disorder, it's chronic? Is it you know, 20%, is there a number to it? Or is it, does it sort of wax and wane across the lifespan? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, there's some good research about this. So, you know, most eating disorders tend to onset in, you know, early, early adolescence, even like early adulthood. And for most people, around 75% of people, if they, you know, receive treatment, that eating disorder then goes into remission at some point during their lifetime, right? And there's mm -hmm. often sustained remission. Um, about 25% of people, you know, despite being in several different treatment episodes uh, across the course of their life, really, you know, don't seem to have much opportunity to have that sustained remission. So, you know, they might have, you know, brief periods of maintaining, you know, a safe weight for themselves or having a safe interaction with food, but, you know, really can't maintain that for a long period of time. And so for that, around 25% of people, there's, you know, a much more chronic form of an eating disorder that um, exists with them throughout their lives. So about a quarter of people who find themselves struggling with an eating disorder, it becomes a more chronic lifelong illness. I, I guess I have a lot of different questions here. Um, but how do you go about sort of treating these people? I, I mean, again, I have a tendency to think of this more through like a substance use lens, because I do think there's some overlap there in terms of like, how chronic these issues can be, but like, what's the difference in, in your treatment approach for somebody who, you know, it's their first time in treatment versus somebody who, you know, it's their, their 25th time in treatment? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, that's sort of the million dollar question, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what are we doing differently for these folks? And, you know, if we think about substance use, there's ways that treatment shifts really clearly in what the sort of gold standard guidelines are, right? So for folks that have a more chronic form of a condition, there's different, for instance, pharmacological supports that people could uh, participate in are different ways to, you know, help support sustained recovery. But really, the eating disorder field is a bit lagging in that con in that mm. way. Um, so we don't really have a gold standard differentiation mm -hmm. between 
how we approach treatment for folks that are in their first episode of treatment for eating disorders compared to their 10th episode of treatment mm-hmm. for an eating disorder. But it's something that is really like an avenue of opportunity to think about clinical innovation, right? Because it doesn't seem to make sense that there would be a one size fits all to treatment. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know what? Again, I don't mean sound like a broken record, but it's similar to substance use in that way, right? I mean, the, there's no, at least not that I'm aware of, there's, there's no real difference between a treatment for someone who's coming in for the first time versus someone who's been in and out, you know, 30 times. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I mean, sometimes it's just sort of the, you go by the playbook of what exists, trying mm-hmm. to see if it'll fit this time. Right. Yeah. And with eating disorders, you know, what our student treatment try and, tries to focus on at an inpatient level is really helping people uh, restore their body, right, to a place where it's medically safe for them to start practicing more independence around eating mm. and more independence around, you know, making those kinds of decisions for themselves. And at the inpatient level of care that we're in, there's a lot of structure to help support that. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that structure folks that have been in treatment for so many times and have had so many struggles with, you know, barriers to making those changes. It can have the unfortunate side effect of sort of leading to a battle, right? Between, you know, the team encouraging people to be eating this amount of food at this Mm -hmm. amount of time in this particular way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the patients themselves saying, this is so overwhelming. I'm like crawling out of my skin. It is so uncomfortable and painful. I really just can't do it at this pace. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our unit is really trying to listen to the experience of those patients with really severe and enduring forms of eating disorders to, you know, see what's worked for them in treatment and what hasn't and try and think about a different path forward. What it sounds like you're saying is like one strength to having been in treatment numerous times is that you probably, patients probably have some idea what works for them and what doesn't work for them or what's helped them in the past and what hasn't helped them in the past. Whereas with somebody who's coming in the door for the first time, they don't really have that experience. Yeah. I mean, our patients who have had treatment experiences before know so much about eating disorders and know mm-hmm. so much about their eating disorder. They're really not in denial at all, right? They know the medical complications that they've experienced. Mm-hmm. They know what kind of meal plan um, is doable for them. They know what kinds of strategies have worked for them and haven't worked for them. And, you know, to be trying to fit a round peg in a square hole mm-hmm. when someone's telling you that it's not going to fit um, is sort of a recipe for just battling with patients instead of finding a respectful, collaborative path forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a big part of it is just, it sounds like finding that, having that collaborative relationship where essentially the patient is the expert on their on what they're struggling with and listening and trying to adjust as you can to help them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that, you know, at times you need to sort of treatment is a difficult thing to trust in. There's, you know, a real practice and I think a reasonable practice in a lot of ways of separating the person from the eating disorder and really you know, externalizing some of the things that the eating disorder wants compared to what the person wants. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when someone is telling you, you know, this is not going to work for me because of my 10 other treatment experiences where this didn't work for me, it really makes sense to listen. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's something that, you know, our unit really tried thoughtfully to listen. So we recently completed a research project where we interviewed 
uh, around 20 patients with severe and enduring anorexia nervosa to ask mm-hmm. them about their treatment experience and their disorder and what they think would be most helpful moving forward and just really learned so much from them. So what were some of the things that they said? Gosh, well, they had such interesting stories to tell. So, mm-hmm. you know, all of these patients talked about sort of the development and trajectory of their eating disorder with such clear insight and thoughtfulness. They really thought about, you know, what were the ways the eating disorder developed for them at first? What were the things that it did for them, the things that it took away from them? And really talked about, you know, having some quality of life and some things that were taken away from them by the eating disorder Mm. and talked about treatment experiences, right? So having those battles with treatment teams and having that feel so invalidating, feeling like such a failure for not being able to meet treatment team recommendations Mm -hmm. and having, you know, occasional experiences of just real alignment with treatment teams and feeling like that was so helpful, so healing, so connecting. There was this one patient who had just like the most thoughtfulness about what kind of quality of life she was wanting after her eating disorder or, you know, living chronically with her eating disorder. And Mm -hmm. she talked about just wanting to have those ordinary experiences, right? So like waking up in the morning and having a breakfast and like packing a lunch for your kid and going to work and coming home at the end of the day and, you know, just relaxing in the afternoons, just the, the ordinary things that people take for granted was one of the things that stuck out stuck out to her as you know the thing that the eating disorder took away the most that it was just making life feel so eating disorder focused instead of life focused which makes total sense i mean i guess one thing i'm thinking about is like almost like obsessive compulsive disorder but like just that it sounds like from what you were describing there's sort of like that constant obsessive thinking about food and eating where like a goal for this woman was to just be able to pack her kids lunch without having sort of intrusive thoughts about eating or the eating disorder or even if not intrusive thoughts just be able to do it and feel comfortable while doing it yeah absolutely and you know eating disorders and ocd are often comorbid and Mm -hmm. you know feed into each other a lot of the time so for this patient in particular that was exactly the struggle she had of you know Mm -hmm. how obsessive her eating disorder was and how it took away so much of her mental space that what recovery would look like for her was not those thoughts not existing ever, but being able to move forward with things that she valued in life without it stopping her. Yeah. And it sounds like just not having life be so focused around the eating disorder. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Really trying to build out like a, a sense of what your values are and what you want your life to look like. And you know, not thinking about the eating disorder as like a tumor that you can operate on and take out of your brain forever. Right. But something that hopefully you're growing around, right? Your life's becoming more rich um, and more fulfilling and the eating disorder is there, but not taking as much of it away from you. Can you think of other illnesses that would be like a good example of that? Yeah. So I think, you know, for eating disorders, there's often this idea of like a full recovery, right? Mm -hmm. That you know, weight is at a certain level, eating is looking this particular way behaviorally, and just like things proceed as usual. And that doesn't necessarily take into account some of the chronic illness and even symptom-based management approaches that other illnesses have. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for example, like in medical illness, if we think about cancer treatment or even diabetes treatment, right? There's periods of acute illness and the periods of remission and 
at times when symptoms need to be managed in the short term and the long term. But that's not, you know, the precision that we have for treating eating disorders. There's also, you know, even with other psychiatric illnesses, right? So like for depression that, you know, takes a chronic form or bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. or, you know, even schizophrenia, there are times of acute illness and times of remission from the illness, but there's consistent management throughout Mm -hmm. time, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think that we've reached a point for eating disorders where there's a clear approach for how do you navigate symptom management throughout a lifespan. Mm -hmm. It basically just sounds like what would be super helpful is just a shift from, okay, this is gone, you know, you're cured to um, this is probably going to be around for a while and you're going to have to manage it consistently throughout either your lifespan or for an extended period of time. So, So what steps do you need to take to manage it correctly? Yeah, exactly. And trying to think about, you know, how are you honoring the sort of long-term trajectory of the illness and also making sure that you're creating and maintaining space for life outside of that condition, Mm -hmm. right? So engaging in valued activities, like trying to build a life that's not so consumed by illness. Yeah. So if you think about a model of treatment, taking into account the chronic nature of the illness, as opposed to like what we just said, you know, treating it and thinking like it's either gone or it's not gone. But if, if you're thinking about it more from like a chronic chronic illness approach, what kind of a model would you use for that as opposed to sort of that other way? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. You know, our team has been thinking about that a lot lately because we're really wanting to, you know, develop and test the efficacy of a new protocol yeah. at the inpatient level of care for this condition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, myself, I'm trained as a psychologist. And so think really theoretically about the psychotherapeutic approach that might best fit a chronic illness model of eating disorders that, Mm. you know, and um, our team has really thought about trying to set up that kind of structure that's based in, you know, real collaboration with patients, trying to be very thoughtful about setting shared goals. And in that way, being more flexible than we might be otherwise in treatment. And really trying to adopt more of an acceptance-based, values-based approach to building a life with an illness that, you know, might persist chronically in some form and trying to make sure that folks are focusing on building a valued life outside of the illness. You know, from a full treatment team approach where we, you know, are certainly navigating medical complications and medical safety and navigating psychiatric safety and nutritional stabilization, that might also mean working to be a bit more flexible than our standard treatment goals where, mm-hmm. you know, we might have for most patients, especially young patients, pretty aggressive weight restoration and nutritional and medical recommendations to try and prevent some medical consequences. But mm-hmm. for folks that are living with a chronic illness, that might mean that a slower rate of weight restoration or setting different weight goals or setting different medical stabilization-based goals that are not even based on weight might be more flexible and a better fit for folks that have done the standard treatment time and time again and not succeeded. So really, a large part of what you're saying, I think, is just flexibility and not being so rigid in terms of treatment goals or specific weight goals, but really collaborating with the patient, listening to what's worked for them in the past, and trying to 
just sort of make that shift from from a more rigid approach to a more collaborative approach? Yeah, absolutely. So trying to tailor the structure of the approach based on the population. Right? Mm-hmm. So for young patients, these kids that are coming in at eight years old with like a like medical complications already from an eating disorder, right? right. The, the speed and the urgency of getting their bodies safe is inflexible, right? Because of how mm-hmm. developmentally crucial those time periods are. But sure, I can imagine. if we think about another population, right? Folks that have been in and out of treatment for years and had very limited success in, re- in restored and um, sustained recovery. For those folks, flexibility might be the only way to help them find a new path forward. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious if you know if there's any research. You now, it sounds like there there hasn't really been too much research, and this is one thing that you're trying to help with, but is there any research on the efficacy of a more a more flexible approach with people with a more chronic form of the illness? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, um, you know, there isn't too much research on this population, which is really too bad. I think it's, you know, um, I'm surprised. Yeah, I know. It's surprising, right? I think it's partly like a funding agency Mm -hmm. issue. And just like the the number of specializing sort of programs that are doing research is Mm -hmm. pretty low. But there is one very good randomized clinical trial that looked at a more flexible CBT based collaborative treatment approach for folks with severe and enduring anorexia nervosa mm-hmm. compared to sort of a standard of care and did find that this you know, more flexible treatment approach led to more sustained remission and mm. greater quality of life. And there have been other kinds of protocols like that that have been tested on an outpatient level of care for folks with this chronic form of the condition. But, you know, there's very little known about what flexibility at an inpatient level of care might do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that we're very interested in and that we're actively researching as a unit. Well, I think it's obviously, it sounds like you're doing great work on the inpatient level of care. I guess I'm wondering for someone who's listening to this that might have more of a severe and persistent anorexia or bulimia or something, what are some takeaways you might want them to have from this conversation in terms of how they can think about their chronic illness? It's a really good question. I mean, I think one of the takeaways that I would encourage people to think about is, you know, first that if you've had many experiences of treatment that have not led to sustained remission or haven't led to a feeling of, you know, being really grounded in your life, that doesn't mean that all treatments are the same, right? And that doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong to not take advantage of treatment, right? It means that treatment hasn't evolved to meet your needs yet, but there's always hope. Um, It's sort of the first takeaway that I would share um, because, you know, there's lots of room for innovation and flexibility from providers that I think, um, you know, might mean that we'd have to take advantage of someone's expertise in their life to think about what's going to fit them best. Um, So, you know, there's folks that want to individualize things and find, help you specifically find your path forward. The other thing I would really think about is, you know, sometimes eating disorders can be so all-consuming. They really take up so much mental space, so much physical energy, um, and just so much time that there isn't really the freedom or the flexibility to think about what life would look like without it or outside of the context of it, right? So I would really encourage people to think about 
what are the things in your life that you want to hold on to tight or the things that you want to build in your life that could fill the space that the eating disorder takes up now, whether that's educational achievements or occupational success or building a family or finding more connections or traveling the world, right? What are the things that if you were to think about writing the story of your life, you'd want to see in it outside of the eating disorder Um, and let those things be, you know, the grounding experience that helps you carve away space outside of the eating disorder that is not the eating disorder to take.